0: Hey there. It's good to see you. I'm glad to be here with you today. So uh, the past few weeks have been really hot and... To save money, my wife Allie and I we try to use the air conditioner as little as possible. So we open windows and we let the breeze just take care of the rest. But something that's made this challenging is our garage door faces east, which means from the very beginning of the day, the sun hits our aluminum garage door and just begins to heat the inside of our garage. So that we don't have an attached garage as much as we have an attached oven to our home, uh, which is keeping keeping the house cool uh, challenging now Across the street, our neighbors, who are some of the nicest people we've ever met, are self-proclaimed rednecks. And they have the toys to prove it. In their garage and their driveway, they managed to fit three dirt bikes, two ATVs, a go-kart, a riding lawnmower, a Jeep, two trucks, a Suburban, and just recently a pop-up camper. And good for them. Like, they use all this stuff. It doesn't just sit there. Like, they go out on these adventures with their young boys and they have a really cool time. Like I said, we really admire these people. But something that I've noticed at night is I'll look across the street and their garage door will be wide open with the lights on. And that's not something I could ever feel comfortable doing. I'm far too cautious to do that. It doesn't seem safe, especially with all that stuff in there. But seeing their garage door open every night has kind of warmed me up to the idea that maybe we live in a safe enough neighborhood where it's okay for us to leave our garage door open in the middle of the day when we're home, not at night, uh, and let that hot air just circulate out of the garage. So we started trying to do this, and it worked. Like Our house got considerably cooler and easier to manage. But when we started doing this, something started, a pattern started to occur Our neighborhood has this website. It's this social forum that neighbors can get on to organize block parties or recommend roofers or plumbers. But what most people use it for is uh, to complain about their neighbors without having to face them. And if you have one of these, you know what I'm talking about. It drives me nuts. So normally I ignore the emails from this, but lately I've been paying attention to them because they're all about the same thing car break-ins. There have been people combing through our neighborhood looking for unlocked car doors, and they'll just take whatever's inside. But every time I read these emails, I looked across the street, and I saw my neighbor's garage wide open with all their stuff in there, and I thought, no, this couldn't happen to us. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I came home in the middle of the day, and I parked my car in our garage, and I left the garage door open, because I was going to leave again in just a couple of hours. And when I went back into the garage to leave, I noticed that my driver's side door was open. And I thought, that's weird. So I walk into the garage and I look through the car and I couldn't find anything missing. Like, even all the papers were still in the glove box. So I thought, well, maybe I left the driver's side door open. But that's the thing, that's not like me at all. I'm way too OCD to leave a car door open. I just don't do that. So I'm not sure that someone wasn't snooping around inside my car. And all of a sudden it just kind of dawned on me there's no reason why these things could not happen to me. And my garage doors open. Well, 150 years before Jesus was born, there was this small group of priests, and and they met together, and they banded together because they were all seeing the same thing happening. Israel had been conquered over and over again by empire after empire, and these priests, they were starting to see that the people of Israel, they were forgetting who they were. They were forgetting their roots and their traditions. They were forgetting that they were God's people, and they were forgetting God himself. People were walking away from God. And the priests, they saw that this was not good. So they met together and they committed themselves to preserving the traditions and the laws that God had given to them. This is excellent. Now, As the birth of Christ got closer, animosity started to grow in the hearts of the Israelites towards their captors. And along with this, they had this growing desire to rediscover who they really were, to rediscover their roots and their traditions. So they came to this group of priests who for the past hundred years had been protecting these traditions and these truths. And they asked these priests to teach them how to follow God again. This is so good. This group of priests was called the Pharisees. And this took me off guard because the way that Pharisees are portrayed now is totally different. We see Pharisees portrayed in movies like The Passion of the Christ as these evil, twisted, sinister people to a degree that I think verges on anti-Semitism, to be honest. But that's not who they were. That's not how they started. Jesus, like in the time of Jesus, the Bible makes it clear that there were many Pharisees who were corrupt and greedy and power hungry, but that's not how they began. They were good people, devoted men of God. So how did it get so bad? Well, Jesus, in the passage that we're going to look at today, he sits down to dinner with a group of these Pharisees and some of their friends, and he starts to lay out the ways that this got so bad. And as I read through them, I realized there's no reason why these things can't happen to me too. And I'm wondering if my garage door is open. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 37. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. If not, we have verses up on the screen for you. Uh, So Luke chapter 11, and we're going to start verses 37 through 41, which say this. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, last week, Pastor KJ spoke to us about how all the things happening in chapter 11 are happening in the same 24-hour period. So Jesus is having a really long day. He spent the entire day speaking to these crowds of people and teaching them things and answering questions and being challenged, and he's getting exhausted. In verse 27 last week, we saw that there was this tonal shift where Jesus, he starts to get a little more blunt and a little more honest with people, and and he He's starting to say some really hard things to hear, some challenging things, but it's good because they're true things. And it's at the end of this day that he gets invited over for dinner by a group of Pharisees. And he sits down to dinner and he just starts eating, which catches the Pharisees off guard because Jewish custom back then was you wash your hands before you touch bread. But he just kind of dove right in. Have you ever been really hungry, like significantly hungry, and you sit down to dinner, and you're reaching for the fork, and someone at the table says, let's pray, and you're like, oh, okay we can pray I guess and so but you don't say that you say okay let's pray so this person you close their eyes and this person just begins giving the longest prayer it's like they've opened up the contacts on their phone and they're going through the list alphabetically just all these ailments and illnesses of these people that you don't know and you don't care cuz you're just so hungry and all you can think about is how good the food smells it's just like inches away from your face and like Like, maybe if you just bow a little bit farther, you can get to it, and it's getting cold, and you're just thinking, just say amen. I just need to eat. And here, Jesus just needs to eat. He's had a long day, and so he just starts eating, which is so cool. But the Pharisees, they they give him this questionable glance, and Jesus responds, And he responds kind of strongly, which also catches the Pharisees off guard. This is like those moments when you you try to politely tell your spouse that there's no fresh towels, or, or there's no food in the refrigerator, and you're immediately informed in detail of how little you do around the house at all. And this is hard to defend yourself against when it's true, which is most of the case for me. And so I just picture Jesus kind of like putting his bread down, closing his eyes, and thinking to himself, okay, okay, You want to talk about cleanliness, let's talk about cleanliness. And then he just kind of gets into it again. Verse 39 through 41, Jesus said, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus informs the Pharisees that they spend all their time and energy focusing on these outward things and totally neglecting what's going on inside. Now, to give a little bit of context for what's going on here, again, the Israelites, they went to the Pharisees and they asked them, to show them how to follow the laws of the Old Testament in their modern-day context. Again, this is good. So the Pharisees, they started to give them some really awesome suggestions. But as the Pharisees grew in popularity, these suggestions became more like rules, and these rules turned into official laws. And soon, these laws were getting held to the same standard as Scripture. This is not good. And many of the laws that the Pharisees wrote focused on things that involved outward expressions of holiness, like always washing your hands before you sit down and touch bread at a meal. And some of the Pharisees got even more caught up in this. They would wear boxes strapped to their foreheads. And in these boxes would be pieces of paper with uh, verses of Scripture written on them. These would be the verses that they would be memorizing and meditating on. And they were there on their foreheads for everyone to see. And they would walk around in public with these boxes on their foreheads. And people would see them and they'd be very impressed. And they be like, wow, look how devoted this person is to Scripture. Scripture, we're not above doing this ourselves. Here are some laws that we have created for ourselves, that we hold ourselves to. When you pray, remove your hat, bow your head, close your eyes, fold your hands, never ever miss a weekend of church, especially not on Easter or Christmas Eve. Only listen to worship music. Uh, have a quiet time or a devotional with God every single day. And we're not above letting other people know how holy we are either. Like we might scoff at Pharisees putting boxes on their foreheads, But the modern-day equivalent of this is the picture posted on Facebook and Instagram of, of your open Bible. And it's clear you've underlined some verses. And in the background is the cup of coffee turned just so. And the copy of Jesus calling in the background. And you can tell the person took the time to pick the perfect filter and the clever hashtag that highlights how spiritual you are. And... Now, I might be kind of a cynic, but when I see things like this online, the first question that comes to my mind is, what is the heart behind this? Like, why is this person doing this? And that's a really good question, something that's really important to ask when it comes to these laws and these rules and these rituals that we've created for ourselves, Because almost always the intentions are so good and it starts off so good, but over time if we lose the heart of why we're doing these things, what do these things become? I'm really guilty of this. There's been a couple times in my life where I've tried doing those read through the Bible in a year plans. And the last time I did this, I got to the end of the Bible and I felt like I really didn't get anything out of it. Which isn't a good feeling to have when you get through the end of the entire Bible. Like surely there must have been something there, but here's what happened it started off really good. I even had this app on my phone that helped me keep track of what verses and chapters I was supposed to read every day. And the app, like it had these boxes that you could check off as as you went through each day. So the first month went great. I was staying on top of it and it was just enough uh, scripture for me to be able to think about it throughout the day. But then a really busy week came along, and I felt a week behind. And the next week, I started reading two days' worth of scripture every day that week to catch up back to the schedule. So I'd be like speed reading scripture while eating my cereal, or I'd be listening to the audio version while I was in the shower. And this cycle of uh, kind of falling behind and catching up again, it would just repeat itself over and over until I got to the end of Revelation. And when I did, I realized that the only reason why I was doing this was to check off the boxes on the app on my phone. I read and listened to every word of scripture and it just grazed the surface. It never got in here because I was using it to wash the outside I was using it to make myself feel better about my daily routine, to check off the box, that, okay, I've read the Bible today. And that's the thing about these rules and these rituals, they're not bad, hear me on that. But if we lose sight of what the heart of those things are, they become things that we use to wash the outside, to make us look good, or to make us feel good. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees here, you devote yourselves to holiness, but you're not doing these things to be holy anymore. All they are doing is perfecting their outward image of holiness and completely ignoring what is going on on the inside, which he begins to talk about in more detail. Verses 42 through 44, Jesus says this, but woe to you, Pharisees, For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. The Pharisees are really good at these outward expressions of things. Like Deuteronomy says, give 10% of all your crops. But the Pharisees, they would go into their herb gardens in case those counted as crops. And they would collect 10% of all the herbs in their herb gardens. And they would tithe those as well. And this is a good thing. Jesus even says, continue to do these things. Tithing is a good thing. But for all the attention you're giving to these outward things, you're neglecting what's going on on the inside. As an example, Jesus brings up justice and the love of God. Justice and love, these are not things that you can just acquire. These are deep, inner, heart-level things that need to be stirred and nurtured from within. They can't be applied from the outside in. They have to come from the inside out. And Jesus says to the Pharisees deep inside where there was once love and compassion for God and his people— Now there is only love for yourselves. You've neglected what's on the inside and something terrible is happening there. Jesus said it this way. He told them that they were like unmarked graves. On the outside is well-fertilized grass, but just beneath it is rot and decay and death. And back then, if you walked over a grave without knowing it, you were considered unclean. Which is ironic because the meal started off with the Pharisees questioning Jesus's cleanliness for not washing his hands before a meal. And here he informs them that they are filled with decay and rot and they are contaminating everyone that they come in contact with. And nobody has any idea. Something we must recognize here is that the thing that is decaying inside of the Pharisees is what is inside of every one of us in this room, sin. Every single one of us has a sinful nature. All of us are bent towards sinful things and the sinful nature has one end and that's self-destruction, which is why we need Jesus so badly. When we make the decision to put our trust in Jesus, we are inviting him to flood into the inside of us, to overwhelm that sinfulness, that decay with righteousness and love and joy and peace and all these things that come from him that produce life instead of death. But the Pharisees They were trying to fix that inward issue with outward solutions. And the most dangerous thing about trying to fix an inner issue with an outward solution is that it looks and it feels like it's working, but it's not. And the problem underneath it is getting worse when we feel shameful for something that we've done, when we become aware of this issue that we're struggling with inside, it feels good to come to church and worship our hearts out. It feels good to give 20 bucks to the homeless man on the side of the road. It feels good to commit ourselves to a reading plan for the entire year. And those things aren't bad. Those are such good things. But if that's how we respond to the inward issue, we're not even touching the inward issue. We're just using those things to wash the outside. And it's distracting us from what's really going on. I try to take really good care of my lawn, but this summer's been tough, and I've gotten kind of lazy, and weeds have always been a problem. So this summer, what I've been doing is I've just been mowing over the weeds. That's all I've been doing. Every week, I just mow the lawn, and it all looks green, and it all looks level, and it's fooling the neighbors, but it's fooling me too. Because when I see this trim lawn that's lush and green, I'm not thinking about the weeds that are in there. All I see is just a pristine lawn. And every week, I just do this over and over and over. But I know what's happening in there if I really pay attention to it. If I go out there and look down, I see that the weeds each week have been spreading farther and farther out. And eventually, they're gonna get to my neighbor's lawns. Addressing an inward issue with an outward solution doesn't work. But Jesus gives an alternative here. He told the Pharisees, it's like they have these cups that are just filled with filth. And they've been trying to wash the outside. But what they need to do is Jesus invites them to turn their cups over and spread it out and say, okay, God, here's what I've got. This is what's inside of me. And then God begins to cleanse from the inside Here's how I've seen this work in my life. Something when it's there that just rots and decays and festers inside of me is unforgiveness. When I'm having having a hard time forgiving someone or not having much grace on another person, that stuff, it just sits in there and it just begins to to fester and decay and and it kind of ferments into this poison that just is full of bitterness. But the thing is, is nobody can see it because it's just on the inside. No one knows that it's there. And it might get so bad that it starts to leak out. Maybe this person will come up in conversation and I'll make uh, an unkind comment about them under the disguise of a joke. And just like that, my bitterness has spread to the next person and they didn't even know it. Now, I could come to church and I could worship my heart out. I could only listen to worship music in the car. I could do all these things that would make me feel better about myself. All the while, that bitterness would still be there, continuing to just rot and decay. I found the only thing that helps with this is if I turn my cup over and I just scoop out all this stuff and I just spread it on the table and say, all right, God, this is what I really have inside of me. Surely you must not love me after this, but he does and he begins to cleanse me from the inside out. Very gently, he reminds me of all the grace that he's had on me so that I can begin to have grace on my brother or my sister. He reminds me of all the times that he's forgiven me on a daily basis so that I can begin to forgive this person who struggles with the exact same thing I do. We're all in the same boat in this, together and with the scribes and the Pharisees. They are not, the Pharisees, they are not these sinister, evil people. They are human beings with a sinful nature like you and me. And they've been trying to wash the inside by polishing the outside. And Jesus invites them and us to turn our cups over and expose what's there so God can begin to cleanse us from the inside out. Now, at this point in the meal, uh, there's another group of people sitting there at the table and they speak up. It's a group of lawyers, and they say in verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, "'Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also.'" And I love how Jesus responds here. I think this is so cool. He just gets done kind of laying it out for the Pharisees. Woe to you for this and this and this. And the lawyers say, hey. And Jesus says, and woe to you lawyers also for this and this and this. He's just not pulling any punches. He's so snarky in this passage. So um, so let's take a look at what Jesus said to them. Uh, verses 46 through 52 forewarning this is this is a lot so 46 through 52 and jesus said woe to you lawyers also for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, but you build their tombs. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Isn't it? ironic how things get confusing as soon as lawyers get involved. Um, But these actually aren't the kind of lawyers that we're used to today. This is a different kind. Uh, Scribes might be a better term for this group of people. These scribes, they are experts in Mosaic Old Testament law. They know it backwards and forwards. These are the people who preserved the original texts that we have today. They're actually really incredible people who did us a great service. Service by doing this, but this passage is confusing. And to really understand it, we're going to have to tackle this kind of like an Oreo. We're going to have to eat the inside before we can get the outside. That's the only way to eat an Oreo, by the way. Um, So let's look again at verses 47 through 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perish between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Okay, what is Jesus getting at here? Jesus is accusing the scribes of constructing tombs for the prophets that were killed generations earlier. But this sounds like a good thing, like a nice thing to do, but it's not. And here's why. For one, it's prideful. In Hebrew culture, they didn't have these lavish tombs. If you were to do something like this, it would be more of a testament to the tomb builder than the person inside of the tomb. But the main reason why this isn't a good thing is because of how hypocritical it is. Because Jesus is telling them that they are just as bad as the people who killed the prophets that they are now building tombs for. This is serious. Jesus is accusing the scribes of being accomplices to the murder of the prophets But then he takes it a step further because he says soon more prophets will be coming and they will get their hands dirty with their blood. They will see to it that they are killed as well. And Jesus would be one of them. But what makes this accusation the most serious is who they are and who they're being accused of killing. Scribes are the guardians of scripture Their purpose is to preserve it and protect it. Prophets are the ones that God has chosen to give his word. So why would the guardians of God's word kill the bringers of it? And if they felt this way, why would they construct tombs for them? If you've ever been to a burial after a funeral, you'll remember the sense of finality that comes with watching a coffin getting lowered into the ground. Now, burial is actually a very beautiful thing. It honors the person who has died, and it also provides those who are watching with a sense of closure. It gives them what they need to begin to move on in many cases. But what Jesus is exposing here is the scribes built these tombs not to honor the prophets, but to remind everyone that the prophets are dead now. They want everyone to move on. To put it another way, Jesus told them their fathers killed the prophets and put them in the ground, but they constructed tombs to ensure that they stay buried. But why? The scribes, their entire life was the law. They lived by the law. They believed in the law. They taught the law. They memorized the law. Their whole lives were the law. But when the prophets came, they spoke of something other than the law. They spoke about grace and forgiveness. And ultimately, they spoke about Jesus. But prophets are not the scribes. They didn't agree with this at all, which is what is behind verses 46 and 52. So let's look at those again. Verse 46, and Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And 52, woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering the law is every single command and instruction that God has given us in the Bible. And the scribes believed that the law was the benchmark that God expected his people to live up to. So they held themselves and everyone else up to this perfect standard. But Romans says that the law can't save us The law is perfect, and we are so far from perfect, there's no chance of us ever getting up to that level of perfection. Jesus even said in Matthew that even the scribes' devotion to the law will not be enough to save them. Romans tells us that the law is not God's perfectionistic expectation of us. It's not the benchmark that he expects us to live up to. Romans says that God gave us the law so that we would become aware of just how sinful we are, how in need we are of grace and forgiveness. And what's so cool is where the law leaves off is where the prophets come in. Because the prophets came and they spoke of where we would find that grace, where we would find that forgiveness. Jesus But the scribes, they were trying to separate the prophets out of the law and make them two different things. But what's so beautiful about the law and the prophets is that they were designed to embrace each other and show us our need for grace and forgiveness and where it will come from. Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus never came to replace the law because it wasn't working anymore. Jesus is what God had in mind the entire time. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Here are some of the coolest examples. The law requires that we make constant sacrifices for our sins. But when Jesus died and became our sacrifice and came back from death, he became the eternal sacrifice. So no more sacrifices need be made. Jesus fulfilled the law. Those sacrifices were just pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus would make. The law says that we need a high priest to mediate between us and God, but when Jesus died and came back from death, he was not only God himself, but he became our high priest so that we no longer needed a mediator between us and God. We now have a direct line of communication. The high priest was a picture of Jesus who was to come. Jesus fulfilled the law. The law required that we do these things at his temple where God dwells. But Jesus made it so that God dwells inside of us. We are now his temple. The temple was a picture of what was to come. Jesus fulfilled the law. I love how Galatians 3.24 puts it. It says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was never meant to save us. It has always, always, always been faith in Jesus. And what's so heartbreaking about the scribes is that they had the pieces and they never put them together. In their Hebrew Bibles were the words of the prophets that they built tombs for. They were there, these words that spoke about grace and forgiveness in Christ They had the key of knowledge, Jesus said. They knew this, but they never unlocked grace and forgiveness because grace does not fit with the idea that it's the law that saves us. I do this to myself all the time. Something that is not hard for me to wrap my mind around is consequences. If you do something wrong, you deserve a punishment. So when I'm feeling ashamed for something that I've done, and I'm feeling guilty, consequences, again, is not something too difficult for me to wrap my mind around. But when I am feeling shameful and guilty, something that is hard for me to wrap my mind around is grace and forgiveness, because that's not something I deserve. It doesn't fit into the construct of consequences, Now, I know what Jesus did for me. I know that I'm forgiven, but there's something oddly comforting about punishing myself for something wrong that I've done. So I hold the law over my head and I remind myself over and over and over that I have fallen short of what God has expected of me. But that is not what the law was ever meant to be. The law is like an MRI machine. It's designed to give us a full internal body scan to show us the things inside of us that we could not see ourselves. And God gave us this to be aware of the troublesome things inside of us. Because when we become aware of an internal problem, like a tumor, it moves us to act. It moves us to find a cure. This is a very healthy response. The response that God intended for us to have when we read just how imperfect we are. But when the prophets came and they spoke of a surgeon who was going to come and they spoke of a cure, the scribes, they shooed them away and ordered more scans and more tests be done. And when Jesus himself came ready to perform surgery, they killed him, which is so dumbfounding. Why would they do this? They must be evil, sinister people, right? They had the key of knowledge, and they didn't unlock the door for anyone, right? Well, it says that they didn't unlock the door for themselves either. They were so entrenched and so good at legalism and washing the outside of the cup and ignoring the inside that they had become blinded to this. When Jesus was dying on the cross that they put them on, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They can't see it. Jesus had compassion on them on the cross and Jesus had compassion on them in this meal, in this passage. The most common phrase in this passage is woe to you which is a phrase of condemnation to say what you're doing is horrible, but it's also a phrase of deep sorrow and remorse to say what's happening to you is horrible. It's like saying, I am sorry for you. So to the scribes and to the Pharisees and to us, Jesus says, I am sorry for any of you who are trying to fix an internal problem with an outward solution. I am sorry for any of you who have been doing this so long that you can't even see what's going on inside anymore. I am sorry for those who are holding the law over their own heads. I am sorry for those who have buried grace. I am sorry for those who stand behind locked doors holding the key. And when Jesus shared these things with the scribes and the Pharisees, they responded like this. Verse 53 and 54, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They just became more entrenched in their legalism and their practices and their rules and their rituals. But we have the opportunity to respond differently. And it starts with acknowledging that we are no different from the scribes and the Pharisees. I may not carry myself like a Pharisee, but I carry things around in my cup that I have been trying to wash from the outside. I don't hold the law over anyone's heads but I hold it over my head. I'm not constructing tombs for prophets, but when I come here and I sing about grace and forgiveness, when I've had no grace and forgiveness on myself, all I'm doing is decorating the tombs that I've buried those things in. But we have been given the key of knowledge. We've been given the knowledge that it is not the law that saves us, it never was but it's faith in Jesus. Jesus is the key that unlocks freedom and grace and peace inside of us. We have been given the key to turn our cups over and spread out our mess and say, okay, God, this is what I really have going on inside of me. I can't do this on my own anymore, so I need your help to cleanse me from the inside. We have the key to remove the shameful burden of legalism off of our shoulders. We hold the key to crack open the tombs that we have buried grace in so that they can flood back into our lives. Woe to you who stand behind locked doors holding the key. But for anyone who unlocks that door and walks through, they are free. Let's pray. Just wanna give you a moment to think through some things, and uh, I'd really encourage you to just invite God into this moment. Um, As you think through these things, make sure you take some time to listen, to hear what God has to say. Um, Is there something that you've been carrying around inside of you? That you have been trying to clean up from the outside yourself? If so, how have you been trying to do that? What role does the law have in your life? Have you been holding it over your head like I do often? Have you buried the idea of grace? Have you mourned it and moved on from it? and constructed tombs on top of it so that it can't come out anymore. Father, we are here before you, imperfect people. People filled with things inside of us that rot and decay, but you are greater than those things. You knew that we had no hope of being perfect. And so you sent your son, Jesus, to flood inside of us, to cleanse us from the inside out. And though most of us have made the decision to trust in you, Jesus, many times, we choose to turn to the old way. We choose to turn to the idea that it must be the law that saves us. And we are sorry for it. Father, would you help us to take this knowledge that we have of you and unlock grace again and let grace flood into our lives? Would you help us to begin to remove the burdens that we've placed on ourselves? Father, you are a God of love and grace and mercy. You sent your own son to die for us so that we would not have to. Thank you. So Father, tonight as we begin to worship you, I pray that for those of us who need this, worship would be the act of beginning to turn that key and unlocking the things that we have kept locked away for a long time. So Father, we come before you and submit to you in worship right now.